0: One of my favorite sort of secrets about the Red Pony, there wasn't really a morgue in Longmire. There was just this sort of unused storage closet at the hospital where they would stash a body every now and then. In practical reality, that was the kitchen of the Red Pony. Sometimes you would see Henry in there cooking, or you'd see somebody in there, and then sometimes we would redress it a little bit and it would turn into the morgue where there was a dead body on a gurney. The health department would have a fit, but uh, yes, the dead bodies were stored in the kitchen of the Red Pony.
1: In. Cut to.
0: Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day.
1: Night. Action. Yo ho ho, and a bottle of rum. Welcome back to Restaurant Fiction, the podcast that reviews every single fictional restaurant, bar, and club in TV and film, as well as talk about the screenwriting process. Today, we are going to be reviewing and talking about The Red Pony. It was the prominent saloon bar in the long-running show Longmire, either on A&E and then moving on to Netflix. Today's guest isn't another than Hunt Baldwin, the executive producer, the showrunner of Longmire. This is a very quick intro because the episode is just that goddamn good. So, we're going to get right into it. Without any further ado, here is the review of The Red Pony as well as our interview with Hunt. Guys, welcome to the Restaurant Fiction Podcast. Why are you listening today? Well, guess what? You're listening because we went down to Wyoming to a county, and make sure I'm pronouncing this correct, Absaroka County.
0: That is correct. It's correct to mispronounce the word Absaroka as Absaroka, which is the name of the fictional county that the show is set in.
1: If you're not even familiar with Wyoming, guess what? It's pretty much Montana. Why did we go there? Well, we went because of this jukebox. This is almost like breaking news. We get to this bar and it's called the Red Pony Cafe and the jukebox is broken. Not like uh, broken, it doesn't play, but it just plays metal and rock. We like all music. It doesn't matter if it's EDM or if it's rock or if it's metal. I guess we were expecting more Western, more country. Anyway, we still drank at the Red Pony. We still had a good time because uh, we wanted to seek salvation at the bottom of a uh, whiskey glass, and that's what it's about. You're going to get your locals. You're going to get the people who want the free therapy with the bartender. You're going to get the romantic couple either on a first tender date or uh, renewing their vows in the rear. You know, you might get a fight once or twice. That's just what happens in this these parts of Wyoming. You're going to get the uh, taxidermies on the wall. You're going to get the heads of elk and bison, and they're just leering at you. Where is the rest of the bodies? You ask. Well, it's in the food. It's in the charcuterie, or in these parts of the nation, it's just called jerky. And how is it made? It's just a little salt, a little thyme, and obviously the meat itself. Wild game. Uh, Wild fowl, wild fish, everything is wild caught in these parts. This is not really for the vegan at all. I mean, the vegans can drink, but let's just leave it there. The bison, the bison um, is really minced, and it's placed on some amazing fry bread, which is pretty much called a Wyoming tostada. See the trout, because there's a lot of trout uh, catching in these parts. Well, what was really fascinating with us is that the... uh, it's a nice little fried trout skin BLT, and actually the trout skin is even crispier and saltier and even more flavorful than bacon in and of itself. So what really is the Red Pony Cafe? Well, it's not trying to win any awards. It's not going to ever be a James Beard Award or a Michelin Star. Really, why is it there? It's there because whoever has ever felt that they didn't fit in actually fits in at the Red Pony, and that's why it's going to stand this test of time. All right, Hunt. What would you think of the review? What would you add? What would you subtract of the Red Pony Cafe?
0: You got it pretty good. The uh, thing you failed to mention was the, uh, the, the famous uh, chili cheeseburger that people came from far and wide for, all the way from Denver. And uh, at the end of season one, uh, a guy named Detective Fails came all the way just because he'd heard about the chili burger. The chili burger. He may have had a, a, another agenda as well, but the chili burger was uh, is the, the local specialty. Have you had this chili burger? I have not because in reality, uh, when we were actually on set filming at the Red Pony, mostly what was available were uh, French fries and grilled cheese sandwiches, soft foods that did not crunch and create issues for the, uh, the boom microphone uh, in the rather big cavernous space that the, uh, the Red Pony is. Excellent, excellent. How important is the Red Pony to Longmire? One of the interesting things about Wyoming as a place in real life and as a place to set stories is how empty it is. It's pretty unusual in this day and age to be in a place not densely populated. It's one of the things that's great about it. You you feel like you're truly alone sometimes. You've gotten in nature and you feel like you're actually seeing nature, not some canned version of it. The flip side of that, though, is it can get pretty empty and lonely. And I think that one of the things we love when we set out to do the show, we loved the, this idea of the big empty, right? That Wyoming is the big empty. And that's, that created a kind of a mood, a different kind of environment for stories. But it also creates a problem, which is there is a lack of sociability. There's a lack of people, places where people naturally come together. People that are drawn to a place like Wyoming tend to be drawn there for those reasons. They like solitude. They like freedom. They like wide open spaces. They like a lack of population. But when you're telling stories and you're generating conflict and drama, you do need a place where people do come together, where they gather, where they socialize. And uh, you know I don't think there's any way we could have done this series without something like The Red Pony.
1: How does then The Red Pony become a character in and of itself?
0: There are two things that, that are really important about The Red Pony. One of them, as I mentioned, is that it's it's one of the only places that's that people come to gather. There's a, a real-life place... Um, in Wyoming, a town called Dubois, and they've got a little bar there, and on Friday nights after the rodeo, people call it the town meeting, where people just go to the bar after the rodeo, and that's where you know you're going to see people. You may not see anybody for your entire week, but you know you're going to see everybody that one time in that one place. The second thing for our series that was really important is The Red Pony is sort of an extension of the character of Henry Standing Bear. You know, it's the bar that he owns and runs, and it like him, occupies this really interesting space in Absaroka County, which is kind of a DMZ between the county and the Cheyenne Reservation. He's one of those people that has a a bit of a foot in both camps. He is native himself, he is Cheyenne, and he can hang with the Cheyenne, and he's got a certain amount of credibility, but he also has pretty deep roots with some of the people in the county, with Walt Longmire in particular, and so he's able to sort of straddle that sometimes uncomfortable divide between the reservation and the white world outside. And the Red Pony geographically kind of sits near the res, but not on the res and near the town, but not in the town. And it's kind of that, that interesting, um, like I say, DMZ, that netherworld between the two that he presides over, that he represents. It's where, where those two worlds come together, where sometimes they clash a little bit, but that's really the other reason why it's, it's really fundamental to the show.
1: What kind of mythology did you and did your writers create of The Red Pony? Like, was there, or was it, did it start as interior
0: bar? The show is based on a series of novels written by a guy named Craig Johnson, and so he created it. When we read the the novels originally, there were two or three places that were recurring, interesting, possible locations for this coming together of people. There was uh, a little cafe called The Busy Bee, sort of a quaint breakfast all day kind of place. Uh, There was the Red Pony, which is Henry's Bar, and then there was the sort of fancier, quieter bar at the local hotel. We we knew we couldn't really build all of those places. It wasn't practical to build all those sets, and you know, uh, a quaint little uh, place to get coffee and and breakfast is fine, but when you're talking about murderers and biker gangs and all kinds of unsavory people, it seems like a bar is going to generate a little bit more of the the energy that you're looking for in a, in a show that's essentially a crime show. It was obvious to us that the Red Pony was the location of all of those locations that was going to be in our show. All of the mythology in our series that's there is sort of created before your eyes, you know, so you, you understand how that just that it's important to Henry, but you don't know where it came from, how it was created but you do know that when he loses the bar to his old enemy, Malachi, that that's a, a rough moment and a big motivating factor for him to start maybe uh, transgressing and acting in, in gray areas because that places him. It's an extension of him and he needs back. At least
1: in the show, you made sure that Walt had a drink. Rainier beer. What does Rainier say about Walt and just, I mean, is it important to give a character a drink?
0: There were certain things in the book that resonated with us. I was like, ah, that's a character that I want to write a show about. And, you know, we've taken our version of Walt Longmire off in different directions. But Craig had him drinking Rainier. And to me, that was one of the things that crystallized him for me, right? This is a guy, he's he is drinking a beer that he started drinking a long time ago for who knows what reason, right? It was available. <laughs> and at the time that... Craig was first writing this book and that we were first reading this and thinking about doing the series, Rainier was almost gone. I mean, there were a couple of parts of the world where it was still there, but, you know, so Walt hanging on to what was almost an anachronistic, almost an over- Brand, right, the way Pap's Blue Ribbon was years ago before the hipsters resurrected it. He was loyal to this product from the past. That said everything to me. And then obviously it became really important to us in writing the story and the pilot. So, yeah, I think that the idea that, you know, Walt drives an old Bronco, he drinks a, a beer that's no longer au courant. I think what's interesting since we started making the show, and I can't draw a line of cause and effect, but Rainier is everywhere now in Wyoming at least. You can't go into the general store there and, like, not find... It comes in, they usually drink Tall Boys, you know, the big 16-ouncers, but it's, it's all over the place now. It's a resurgent brand.
1: I've studied a little bit on these Baby Boomer beers, you know, like Schlitz, Old
0: Milwaukee. I collected beer cans when I was young, so oh. the Baby Boomers were the staples of my collection. I mean, the weirdest habit for a kid, right? Like, yeah. to go out and not just pick up garbage and put it in your garage, but, like, alcohol is strange. Any bar tropes
1: a writer should shy away from?
0: Everyone knows the Naked Gun movies, but before the Naked Gun movies existed, there was a little, it was six episodes on ABC called Police Squad. Mm -hmm. Leslie Nielsen is the cop and that Zucker Brothers great humor. And they had a character that they would go see. And I think they saw him in the movies too, the shoeshine guy, Johnny. And once every episode, Leslie Nielsen would sit down in the shoe shine chair and go, Johnny, what's the word on the street? And then Johnny would tell him everything that he needed to know. Like he was the repository of all knowledge. And uh, it was so funny on the show, but it's the kind of thing that people do a lot. Like you go to the bar to get the word on the street because that's where the word on the street gets. I think that's... That's a little lazy, and, and um, like I said, we we fell prey to it ourselves a couple of times. It's hard not to, but uh, that's one thing you want to try to avoid.
1: How many scripts in the past and present have had a bar that you've written in them? You know,
0: and I think everything else I've done has been sort of taking place in a city where bar becomes kind of a a generic concept as opposed to like an important place. I think being in a small town, a bar changes character instantly. It becomes one of your only choices or if not your only choice and so it takes on the character of the place in a much different way i think than if you're writing a, a series set in chicago like trust me was or los angeles where the closer was like there are plenty of bars you can go to a bar that where no one knows you you can go to one where everybody knows your name but you can choose any number of them in a uh in a small town if you want to drink you're going to the bar where everybody knows you for better or worse
1: it's interesting because like say like in the closer and I'm using the Closer as say just like a procedural and generality here. Usually the bar, what I have found, is more of the reward.
0: Props to James Duff who created the Closer. Like, that was not a thing on the Closer. They didn't all get together at the end of the day and talk about their case at the local bar. All the bars that we saw in the Closer were places that you would move through in the course of an investigation, right? Like, somebody stopped here, there's somebody you want to talk to there. That is definitely a a, a tried-and-true TV trope for police, firemen, and lawyers at the end of their hard day to get together at that bar and, hey, no hard feelings, whatever conflict we just had through the day, like let's all reset and just talk about how great it is that we're all great.
1: You mentioned the change of the dynamic of the TV watching culture. Longmire went from A&E to Netflix. Now, did the tone of Longmire change and how did it change? I
0: think the big change from going from A&E to Netflix, and it it was happening already a little bit at A&E where, we were evolving the show from a closed-ended procedural show into a longer-term serialized show. a recognized that TV was changing that way, and they were encouraging a little bit of that. By the time we were on um, Netflix, I think it was more like, sure, you can do a closed-ended mystery, but hopefully half of that show is going to be about Walt and Vic's relationship, or Katie wanting to go work for Jacob Nighthorse, or what's Jacob Nighthorse up to, what's Barlow Connolly up to, like that, those things that are happening over the entire run of uh, a season or multiple seasons were more interesting to them. And so they really encouraged us to dig into our characters more than the guest characters that we were bringing in and the mystery of the week. And that, I think, changes the tone of your show. The other thing that happened is a really simple, practical one, which is we actually filmed the show the same way. We performed the show the same way. We wrote the show the same way. But when it came time to edit the show, you didn't have to cut to commercials and you didn't have to cut it down to 43 minutes and so our shows if you look at the Netflix episodes they start running into the 50 minutes an hour plus whatever the story required you could a scene that wanted to breathe and uh, you wanted to linger on a, on someone's face for a long time and watch them process what's happening to them we could do that in a different way than we could when we were on ad-supported television. And that changes the pace, which in turn changes the tone. So I think one of the great gifts of being on streaming service or on premium cable, and you don't have to change the rhythm of your sh- of your story to meet commercial breaks or anything like that. The challenge is that you can get self-indulgent and you can forget to be efficient and crisp in your storytelling. The
1: previous question you mentioned, like change, change in the TV landscapes, change in the length of the episode, a lot of change. Well, for you personally, how has your
0: storytelling style changed throughout the years? Part of our approach to storytelling changed in response to what the rest of the world wanted. Part of it, though, I think was really actually informed by this show, making this show with these people where, you know, when we were developing Longmire and when... We were shooting the first seasons. The landscape was really, really filled with dark, anti-hero, depraved kind of stuff. Shows I love to watch. But it was interesting to work on a show where most of your characters were basically good and loving people. People that all cared about each other, not people who hated each other and were at war with each other. And the realization that you could still tell interesting, dramatic, conflict-filled stories with people who were decent and wanted to do the right thing and liked each other was weirdly a little bit of a revelation. I think making an interesting story about somebody good is a really interesting challenge and one that I enjoy thinking about and spending time on much more than I than I like to think about how can these people torture each other? How can how can this person What's the cruelest thing I can imagine? How could I put that in this? And again, that's not the same as what I watch. I watch everything. I love shows that are like that. But for me, working on Longmire was this sort of revelation that I could write about people that I liked more.
1: So what you're saying is they can be good women, good men, and still have a gray area.
0: Well, I think that you know, a great example of this is one of the big conflicts in Longmire was between Jacob Nighthorse and Walt Longmire. He's always at odds with Walt, and Walt's the guy we know so well. We know what's in his mind and in his heart, and so we know he's a good guy. Well, The more you talk to Jacob Nighthorse, the more you see scenes with him, he's maybe cutting some ethical corners here and there, but his heart is kind of in the right place. He's just got a different agenda. He's trying to help a different group of people and they've got a different challenge and so if he has to fuck over the white man to do it so be it realizing that that the conflict between Walt and Jacob was way more interesting when it wasn't between good and evil but between competing definitions of good it's an obvious thing when you watch a superhero movie the best villains think they're doing something helpful for humanity right They're not just trying to dominate the world for their own evil purposes. But even better than that is somebody who might be right. They might be helping, and your guy might be wrong, however good his intentions are. When I compare that to my experience in life, I don't know many people that set out to be assholes. It happens sometimes. It happens more often than we would like, but they usually have a different story that they tell themselves. And often, a pretty good one. Sometimes you find out like late in the game, like, oh, I'm the asshole. (laughs) I didn't realize it. And I think that's a more human story and a more interesting story than good versus evil.
1: What advice would you give a smart, driven, emerging
0: writer now? I love this question because everyone gives the same advice to writers. What I used to say was, write. Oftentimes, more energy goes into pitching and meeting and talking than actually writing. And so I used to say, write, make sure you don't stop writing because that's actually the value that you're adding to this economy, right? No one, everyone can talk, not everyone can write. That's still true. But over time I've thought, I've come to believe actually maybe the more important thing is read and not just other scripts. I think a lot of writers in the television and film business go to school on television and film. They read scripts, they watch television, and that's great, that's helpful. But sometimes you end up with a, a worldview that is sort of circular, right? You learn from television and movies, and then you write things that sound like they came from a TV show or a movie, not from some other place, and they end up feeling like something you've seen before. I think if you read more voraciously fiction, nonfiction, fiction, Books, you actually get a broader experience of language and storytelling than you do by just doing the Hollywood thing and and watching and reading scripts.
1: What about advice an emerging writer should ignore?
0: You know, I honestly think almost all advice is good advice. It's all interesting. It makes you think. If you get advice that sounds terrible to you, It probably is bad for you, but it's interesting to engage that idea and think about it. It's a little bit like getting notes on a script, right? Like, you know, someone will give you a note in a script and you're like, what? That's stupid. I hate that note. But if you actually stop and think, usually there's something really interesting. There's a way to make your script better from listening to that note. Even if you don't agree with it or believe it, you're like, okay, something didn't work and they tried to identify it. I think what they identified is garbage. I don't think that character needs to be likable But something didn't work for them there. Let me think about that scene again. So I think bad advice is useful advice. The one thing I will say that drives me a little crazy, ultimate truism that everyone tells writers, write what you know. I'm getting a little tired of that. I actually think that suggests you can't learn deeply about something that's interesting to you. And I don't know why you'd be a writer if for any other reason than you want to just spend time learning and thinking about things that are interesting to you. And so... If all I could write was what I knew and write my own experience, I don't think anybody would want to see that movie. A kid growing up in a well-to-do suburb in the Chicago, you know, north of Chicago, I don't think that's a great story. And John Hughes already did that. That's exactly where I grew up, in the world of John Hughes. Um, people ask me where I grew up. I said, did you see Ordinary People? They're, yeah, like, that's my high school. My friend Bill had Timothy Hutton's locker. Write what you're interested in, and... If you're going to write about England in the 19th century, find a personal connection to it. Find something that you identify with that character or create a character who might represent your point of view in it, but don't be afraid of writing something that is not your experience. Just find your human connection to whatever that is. And That's the write-what-you-know part.
1: What is the Hunt eating and drinking tour in Wyoming?
0: The best piece of beef that I have eaten in the last five years I ate in Wyoming at a restaurant in Jackson called Trio, high-end, fine-dining Jackson Hole without being too hoity-toity, and the waiter told me how they made it. I didn't ask. He offered. I frankly would rather have been in a conversation with my friends. The other place, a place called Street Food, it's uh, attached to the stagecoach Bar and Grill in Wilson, Wyoming. And of all things, they do a fantastic beef bim The Naughty Pine in Dubois, Wyoming. It's a good place to drink. That's where I saw a bull rider named Smith Baggett get in a fight with a roughneck just back from the oil fields. And then within 10 minutes, they were, had their arms around each other and were best friends after beating the crap out of each other on the sidewalk out in front.
1: What are you eating and drinking at Red Pony?
0: If I'm going to the Red Pony, I'm doing what Shane Muldoon did in episode five of season five, I think. I think that's when it was. And he went fishing on a local stream, caught himself a decent-sized rainbow trout, and he brought it in for Henry Standing Bear to prepare for him, which Henry did willingly and lovingly in the kitchen of the Red Pony. Have him make me a nice uh, nice trout. trout, a little trout almondine from... Uh, Henry Standing Bear.
1: Guys, it doesn't get better than wild-caught trout. And just remember to fry that uh, trout skin up after you do it. Well, Hunt, this has been awesome. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Thank you very much for coming. Had a blast. Thanks, man. Hunt, that was awesome. That was outstanding. Thank you so much for being a guest. Anyway, guys, if you want to watch any of Hunt's work, well, check out Longmire. Every single season is streaming now on Netflix. Also, just IMDb him. Pick an episode of The Closer that he wrote. Pick an episode of Trust Me. You know, Go down his IMDb profile because all of his work is there. So that's how you find out more about him. And obviously, you can scroll through all of our episodes on iTunes. Pick whatever your favorite is. You can watch them back to back to back or every month, every week, whatever suits your fancy. Also, you can go to restaurantfiction.com. My name is Monis Rose, and as always, keep it real, keep it fresh, and keep it on the flip side. Cook two. Exterior. Interior.
0: Restaurant. Bar Club. Day.
1: Night.